John chapter 17. And as you turn there, I just want to take a moment to tie in our study of John 17 here on Sunday mornings with our study of the Revelation, the book of Revelation, on Wednesday nights. Our Wednesday evening study, just so you'll know, of the book of Revelation is an important one for us because that is the book that gives us what God wants us to know about the future. When Christ will return and when Christ will uh, judge the rebellion that's here in this world and when he will finally write all things that are wrong. The past two Wednesday nights, we looked at chapter 4 and then chapter 5 of Revelation, where the Apostle John was taken up to heaven. And in that incredible experience there, he saw the throne of God. He also saw the Lamb of God, Jesus, the only one, the Scripture says there to us, worthy to open a scroll, a particular scroll, a scroll that contains contain the depiction of all the judgments that are still to come in the future. Haven't happened yet. There's been a taste of them along the way. But coming a day when God will pour out judgment upon rebellious man. So we looked at that, began our look at that the last couple of Wednesday nights. But before that, we studied chapters 2 and 3. And there we find Jesus' messages, his letters to seven Churches. Those seven churches were actual churches that existed at the time John wrote the book of Revelation. And as you read and study those seven letters, you conclude one thing for sure, and that is that Christ cares about his church. Christ cares about the moral purity and the doctrinal purity of his church. Well, it is those letters from the risen, exalted Christ that fit with our study here of John 17 on Sunday mornings. There, in the prayer that Jesus prayed, we find that same concern, that same intense concern by the Lord for his church, for the purity, the moral and doctrinal purity of his church, for the holiness of his church. It was on that night before his crucifixion that he prayed for that on behalf of the 11 faithful disciples. He prayed for their doctrinal and moral purity because they were the ones that Jesus knew would continue his own ministry on the earth of gospel proclamation after Jesus was gone. Through them, God would found the church on the day of Pentecost. Through them, the gospel would be proclaimed and many people would be saved and come into the church for the centuries ahead an important prayer for those 11 men. Just for a moment as well, let's think about those 11 men who lived and ministered alongside Jesus during his earthly ministry. One of the disciples was a bad apple, as we say, Judas. But the other 11, they were not perfect. They wavered at times. They were fearful. They were confused at times. But still, they stayed basically faithful to Jesus all during the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And they were definitely an interesting mix of men. In fact, from a human perspective, they were just ordinary. Not very impressive, really. 
And yet, all during his earthly ministry, Jesus knew that it was those men whom God had chosen to tell the world about the salvation that's found only in Christ. So Jesus prayed for them. They needed to be doctrinally, morally pure because God was going to use them to minister to the church. So Jesus prayed for them, confident that his father would hear his prayer, confident that the father would empower those men to accomplish their gospel mission. Now specifically, Jesus made two requests on their behalf. The first one we've seen in previous sermon, as you, as you know, number one, a request for protection. That was found in verses 11 through 16. And as we found in past studies, that request is broken down into four types of protection that Jesus was most concerned about. First of all, we looked at protection from straying. In other words, drifting, drifting theologically. Second, protection from disunity. Christ prayed that they would experience no division amongst themselves and even uh, no division with other true believers as they all ministered and proclaimed the gospel. Third, protection from despair. Jesus wanted them to experience his own joy, full joy, even though they were going to face a lot of opposition in their mission and many difficulties. And fourth, it included protection from worldliness. They were going to have to engage the world to proclaim the truth and yet not be influenced by the world. Well, in today's passage, verses 17 through 19, we find the second request. We've seen a request for protection. Number two is a request for consecration. A request for consecration. Now, this was a petition by Jesus to the Father, that these 11 men would grow spiritually and thus be increasingly consecrated to the mission that God had called them to. And we're going to note several elements of this consecration to the Lord. And as we do that, as we proceed through these verses, keep in mind that the immediate and primary point of this request concerned those original 11 disciples. But definitely by extension... Of course, we know that what Jesus prayed for them certainly does apply to us as well. Here's the first element under this request for consecration. Number one, we're going to see the means of our consecration. The means of our consecration. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That verb, sanctify, is the Greek term hagiadzo, It's a term that basically means to set apart or even to make holy. We saw it used back in chapter 10, verse 36, about Jesus. It says there in John 10, 36, that the Father had sanctified him. In other words, set him apart and sent him, the Son, into the world. Jesus was set apart by the Heavenly Father for his earthly mission. But that Greek term can also be translated consecrated. So we could say it that way. The Father consecrated Jesus for his earthly mission. Now we find an illustration of this whole concept of being set apart unto the Lord for his purposes. When you look at someone in the Old Testament like the prophet Jeremiah or Aaron and his sons who were the priest, they were all, Scripture says, sanctified, set apart for special duty, sacred duty, 
For example, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says to this to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. In other words, set you apart. He says, I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Exodus chapter 28, verse 41, about Aaron and his sons. Exodus 28, 41, God said that they should be anointed. He said, anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. Set them apart that they may serve me as priest. You also find an illustration in how the Old Testament speaks about the sacrificial animals that were to be reserved for God's purposes, for the sacrifices. Deuteronomy 15, verse 19. You shall consecrate to the Lord your God all the firstborn males that are born of your herd. You shall consecrate those animals, set them apart for my use, my purposes. So there's the verb, hagiazo. Of course, there's an adjective form of that that we find in Scripture. It's hagias, and it means to be holy. We find it used in reference to the Holy Spirit several times in the Gospel of John to refer to the Holy Spirit. It's also the term in our chapter that we're looking at. Look back at verse 11. It says that when Jesus prayed, he addressed God as Holy Father. Why? Well, because that's who God is. He is completely holy. That's why in the Old Testament, we, we like to think about that great occurrence in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, where Isaiah uh, saw the, the angels uh, circulating around the throne and crying in the presence of the Lord's presence, holy, 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 thrice holy. Two Wednesday nights ago, we studied that scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, again, something that'll that John experienced as he began to see what was going to happen in the future. And it says in Revelation 4, 8, that he saw there the four living creatures around the throne who did not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Now, those two concepts, being set apart or being holy, they're actually related then in meaning, all from the same word family. God is holy. He, therefore, is set apart from his creation. He is altogether distinct from his creation. He is separate from all he has made. And that separateness is certainly expressed in his nature, his divine nature. In other words, we see that distinctness, that separateness being set apart from the rest of creation in that he's perfect in the very essence of his being. But it's also expressed in what he does, in the purity of his actions, He's holy in his thoughts and communication. And it is that latter respect, uh, his actions, his thoughts, his communication, that he makes us then to be like him. So on one hand, he sanctifies us. He sets us apart for his purposes. And as well, he sanctifies us so that we are made more holy like him. Those go together. And that is precisely what Jesus prayed that the Father would do, that the Father would set apart those 11 men for his own purposes and as well consecrate them to live holy lives for God's glory. As I said earlier, Jesus prayed specifically for those 11 men, these things, but by extension it applies to us. In other words, we know from Scripture that God desires this for all his people, that they would be sanctified 
That they would be set apart from the world in order to live for him. That they would live holy lives. So I do want to review that doctrinal subject just for a moment this morning. Sanctification for us. When does that happen? Well, actually, there's several answers to that. First of all, in a real vital sense, our being set apart happened in eternity past in the eternal mind of God. That aspect of sanctification, we were set apart in his own mind when he set his affection on us and elected us to salvation. Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul comments on that. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, set us apart, why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. So that's the ultimate setting us apart, the ultimate consecration of us. Second, there's a sense in which it happened at the cross as well. In other words, Jesus accomplished our being set apart, our sanctification, when he died to pay the price of the sins of his people. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's talking about the cross. There's a third way to look at this. Equally vital is our consecration, our being set apart that happens at the moment of our rebirth, our new birth, being born again, born from above. According to God's own sovereign plan, we are called out of the world by sovereign work of the Spirit, and the Spirit opens our hearts to believe God's Word and to trust in Christ, and in that moment, we're saved from our sin, and that sets us apart in a sense. It sets us apart from all who are not saved. Now, that is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, where he writes that they were involved in a lot of terrible sins in the past, but 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, but you were washed, it happened, you were sanctified, it's already happened, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. When? When we were saved. We came to Christ. We were born again. Fourth, it goes on about our sanctification. At the moment we did come to Christ and were set apart for his purposes, that began something. A lifelong process of continual being set apart, continually consecrated unto the Lord, what we call progressive sanctification. That process whereby we daily seek to put off sin and we we daily seek to put on practical holiness, practical obedience to the Lord. And through that process, then we are conformed to something more and more over time to the image of Christ. We find that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 28 says that God uses all things for good, for those who are his people, who are called according to his purposes. Then in verse 29, it tells us what the good is. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. I mean, that is a change that happens progressively over time as God takes us through a process where we are increasingly sanctified, consecrated unto him. We increasingly are made 
to be holy as we turn from sin and embrace practical godliness. And if someone is set apart for God and, and his purposes, that means that person now is growing in what it means to want only what God wants, to hate all the things that God hates. I mean, that's what it means to be holy, to be like God, because God is holy. And that is a mark of God's true people, this progressive sanctification. There's one more aspect of it, though. It's the final one. Fifth, our sanctification will be finally completed, experienced at our glorification. There's going to come a day when we will be changed. We'll exist in heaven eternally, even without the presence of sin. Well, back to our text then, when Jesus prayed this, prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, which aspect of all this did Jesus have in mind as he prayed? And the obvious answer is that fourth one I mentioned, progressive sanctification. Jesus prayed that the Father would increasingly sanctify these 11 who had already been set apart by God in his own eternal mind. It already come to faith in Christ, that the Father would increasingly consecrate them so that they were growing in holiness and thus growing in their ministry effectiveness. But look at the text again. Note something very important, and that brings us finally to our point. Note the means of this consecration, the means of this spiritual growth. It says, Jesus said, it will be the truth. And not just any truth, God's truth. What Jesus calls your word. What is that? The word that sanctifies us. Well, first of all, we know that Jesus himself is the word. Let's remember once again. Let's hear it once again. What we started with in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus is the very embodiment of this thing called truth. And therefore, knowing Jesus through the gospel is sanctifying, and we continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. And so the disciples would need that. They would need to continue growing in knowing all that Jesus is. But Jesus did not just embody the truth before them. Before them, Jesus taught them truth. He taught them objective truth, the very truth that the Father had given to him. We saw that in John chapter 14, verse 24. Christ says, the word which you hear, this objective instruction which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. It's his. Look back at verse 14 in our chapter. Christ told the Father, I have given them your word. Yes, he gave them himself, but he gave them Instruction, words from the Father. So Jesus' prayer for them included this, that the Father would continue using that truth in the lives of those men, the truth, the very truth that Christ had given them. And we know something about all that truth. We've seen it before in, in John, that in the future, all that truth was going to be recalled to their minds. It was going to be clarified. Even more truth was going to be given them after Jesus departed. Once the Holy Spirit came to indwell them on the day of Pentecost. Think back to chapter 14, verse 26. Here's what Christ told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. This one was coming, the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he says, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, what was the result of all that? The Spirit's work in the lives of these men and and eventually the Apostle Paul as well, the completion of the New Testament. So for us today, jump back to us for a moment, the Word is the completed canon, the Old and New Testaments. The Scriptures are the tangible record of God's special revelation to man. The Scriptures are the abiding and sufficient revelation of truth to us. And all of it is truth from Genesis through Revelation. Therefore, all of it is necessary for the believer's sanctification. And there's so many wonderful verses in Scripture about its own power in our lives. I'll just refresh your memory of a few of them. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect. And the law of the Lord is another way to refer to the the canon of Scripture that they had. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The second part of all those statements are about sanctification. Restoring the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. That's growing in the knowledge of truth. Psalm 119. Let me read the whole psalm for us. Just seeing if you're listening. Okay, I'll just pick out one verse. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. What does it mean not to sin against you? That's sanctification. New Testament, Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, when he saw them for the last time, they came out to meet Paul, they knew him, he was, he was giving them some final encouragement and instruction and warning. Here's what he says in Acts 20 verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. What does it mean to be built up? It means to be sanctified, increasingly consecrated unto the Lord. To the Thessalonians believers, he wrote this, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. On a normal day, I have trouble saying Thessalonians, but I took three antihistamines this morning, three different kind. (laughs) And so even more so today, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. We also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. What is that referring to? The word's ability to perform a work in you, that is sanctification. And Peter, who heard that prayer that night, later instructed the Christians of Asia Minor, many years later, this way in 1 Peter 2 verse 2, like newborn babies, Long for the pure milk of the word. So by it, that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. What does it mean to grow in respect to salvation? It means to be increasingly sanctified, set apart, consecrated unto him, and holy like him. And of course, there's one far-reaching verse in the New Testament that we keep at the forefront of our thinking all the time. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness. What are those four things? Teaching and reproving and correcting and training. That's sanctification. Growing, increasingly consecrated unto the Lord. So in practical terms, we can conclude this, that no one can be sanctified, no one can be set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think the way God thinks, or as theologians like to say, to think God's thoughts after him. And this is where we find his thoughts in the canon of Scripture. We cannot experience ongoing sanctification without learning to live in conformity with and in submission to the word that he has graciously given to us. Listen, this marks us. There's a great contrast between us and the world when it comes to the word. The world suppresses the truth. The world denies the truth. The world changes the truth, redefines the truth. The world rejects the truth. So our connection to the word should define us as people who are not thrown off by the philosophies and the teachings of the world. We are those who do not embrace every passing intellectual fad. Instead, we are the ones who stand firm in the truth of the word. We are the people of the book. And we submit to its authority because it is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. The Westminster Larger Confession puts it this way, the word is our only rule of faith and obedience. And the result of this commitment to Scripture will be then a distinctively biblical lifestyle that identifies us as the people of Christ, that we are the ones set apart unto him. We are the ones becoming more like him, more holy. That's why we as a church must be devoted to the ongoing, consistent teaching and proclamation of God's Word. That's why we need churches in this world that are known for that. That's why it's so sad that there are so many churches in our world who don't do it. Here's what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What are those things? What what does it mean to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted and be instructed? It means to be increasingly sanctified. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, the world. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I read internet articles and read the news and stuff like that in different services that are very worldly in their thinking. And I keep thinking about this. I'm reading something from this group, teachers who have been accumulated, who can tickle their ears. He goes on to say in verse 4 that the day's coming, they're going to turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's the world. We're not like that. We're committed to the word, and there is no power on earth that compares with truth, God's word. So back to our text, if those 11 men were going to be sanctified, growing in holiness, increasingly consecrated to the Lord and his purposes, it would be through this means, the means of the truth of the word. It is the word negatively thinking here that separated them from the world and would separate them even more from the world in the future But on the positive side, it's the truth that sets them apart unto God. 
So there's one element of this consecration, the means of our consecration. Number two, the purpose of our consecration. Verse 18, the purpose of our consecration. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. God sanctifies his people. He consecrates them. Jesus was praying for that, for these men, that God would, the Father would do that, consecrate them, prepare them, sanctify them, but for a purpose. Their God-given mission in this world. Said differently, God saves people and he sanctifies them in order to send them out. Just so you'll know, the Greek verb for sent here is apostello. It's where we get our word apostle. These 11 disciples, the apostles, were unique in redemptive history. They were uniquely sent out as Christ's authoritative representatives. And they were going to continue the work in the world that Christ had been doing. And it was a world that it is, a, is a, an evil world system controlled by a devil. So a system and a, and a devil that hates God and hates his truth. That world was going to be their place of service. And through their witness, the world then was going to be exposed to the truth, the gospel, and many would come to saving faith. Still happening today. So obviously, by extension, this is the reason God sanctifies us as well. It's not an end unto itself. It's for a purpose, so that we are his agents for gospel proclamation in the world. So the means of our consecration, the purpose of our consecration, and lastly, the model for our consecration. The model. If we want to know what all this looks like, we just need to look at Jesus. He modeled what it means to be holy. He modeled what it means to be committed to and consecrated unto and set apart for the gospel mission. And that's why he concludes his prayer in verse, for the 11 in verse 19 this way. Verse 19. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. As I mentioned earlier, the Greek term sanctify can be translated consecrate. So he, he's saying that. He said that he had consecrated himself, set himself apart. Now we might understand maybe more clearly that it's the Father that sanctified Jesus. I mean, we understand that. Scripture tells us that. The Father sanctified him. The Father consecrated him. The Father sent him into the world. But here he says, I sanctify myself. So what does it mean that Jesus sanctified, consecrated himself? Well, just remember something about the divine son. He's the eternal son of God, existing in the Godhead, eternity past, one of the equal members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit perfect in essence of his being, but when he came to earth, he did something. He took on another nature. He took on human nature. Perfectly God, a divine nature, and yet perfectly human, a human nature. Two natures in one person, the only one we can say that of. It was in his humanity that he did sanctify himself in the sense that he learned what it meant to consecrate himself and therefore to be consecrated to the mission. 
Now, the author of Hebrews tells us something very similar. It's a verse that perplexes many. It's Hebrews 5, verse 8. It says this, although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That's talking about Jesus. I mean, how did Jesus learn obedience? He's perfect, having never sinned, a member of the Godhead. He's talking about in his humanity, though. When he took on human nature like us, he experienced thirst, weariness, hunger, all of that, pain. And in his humanity, he also learned growing up what it means to submit himself to the truth and to obey. So yes, in his human experience, Jesus did grow. He did experience a sanctifying process. So as the one with a human nature, he did consecrate himself to the gospel mission. And of course, that consecration of himself included even consecrating himself, committing himself to even suffer the agony of the cross that he was facing when he prayed that night. In fact, it was only because Jesus was committed to that, to his mission of atoning for sins, that believing sinners can then be sanctified in themselves. I read a verse earlier about There's an aspect of our sanctification that's associated with the cross. Well, here's another one. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Means he was crucified outside the walls, the gates of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Why? That he might sanctify the people through his own blood. So that night, in praying this, Jesus confirmed that one of the reasons... He suffered on the cross was for the sake of those 11 disciples present with him to pay for their sins, certainly, but also so that they could then also be consecrated unto God. And of course, by extension, as I've already said, he did this for all his people that he had come to save. His self-sanctification secured the sanctification of his followers. Listen to how Paul expressed what our lives ought to look like. Titus 2, verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So back to Christ. His death made all that possible, but it also serves as something else for us, as a model It's a model that his people can look to. It's a pattern that we can follow. Jesus understood what it was in his humanity to consecrate himself to living a holy life. He knew what it meant in his humanity to choose to commit himself, sanctify himself, consecrate himself, to be used in the gospel mission. He knew that it involved commitment. He knew that it involved sacrifice. He knew that it involved this consecration, obedience to the Father, and he lived all that out. Our consecration involves all those same things. We can look to him as a model for what it means to be consecrated. So, two requests, the request for protection, protect them from drifting theologically, from experiencing disunity and getting off track because of that, getting off track because the opposition was so severe and they, and they would slip into despair. He prayed for their joy. He prayed that they wouldn't be influenced by the world where they were being sent. 
and then he prayed for their consecration. Something that happens by the, the role of the truth in their lives. For that purpose that God had called them to, proclaiming the gospel in a lost and fallen world, they could always look back to what they knew about Jesus as a pattern, as a model to follow, and so can we. With all that in mind, I just want to leave you with three final thoughts this morning. In a way, we really are fast-forwarding to us today. What does this mean for us? Number one, God still expects His people to pursue sanctification. God still expects His people to pursue sanctification. Now, He works in us to sanctify us, but we have a role in it. We have a role in our ongoing growth, our ongoing consecration, our ongoing increasing commitment. We have a role that's captured in verses like these. You ought to write these down and you ought to refer to them frequently to be reminded, what does God expect of us in this thing called being sanctified? Romans 6, 11 through 13. Romans 6, 11 through 13. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Consider it to be true. This is your identity, dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 12, therefore, because of that, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body, your, your mind, your eyes, your mouth, your hands, your feet, and so forth. Don't go on presenting all the members of your humanness to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But instead, he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You, you offer up everything about your humanness to him. And verse 19 connects it to sanctification. He says it again. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, a growth in maturity, a growth in what it means to be consecrated unto God. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. On the negative side, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Paul wrote, in Ephesians 4, verses 22 and 24, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. In other words, lay aside, put off all the deeds that are associated with a lost life, verse 24, and put on the new self. There's the process of our role in sanctification, a constant putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on. Philippians 2.12, we studied not too long ago. We're commanded, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it, but work it out. Make it evident. That's sanctification. Verse 13 tells us, of course, that God works in us to accomplish it. One more, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin. Two different things there. Every encumbrance, things that can distract you. Things not necessarily evil in and of themselves, but they can get you off track in this thing called sanctification and serving the Lord. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance, the race that's set before us. What does it mean to run the race with endurance? It means to become increasingly sanctified. He says you do that, verse 2, you fix your eyes on Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of faith. All of this and more that I could read summarizes our role in consecrating ourselves to the Lord so that we can truly then impact this world for the gospel. I said it last week. We impact the world not by becoming more and more like it, but by being different from it in a loving Christ-like manner. But make it personal, this first one. God still expects his people to pursue sanctification. Make this personal. How? Things like this. Intentionally, take some time each day, perhaps when you get up in the morning, to remember your identity in Christ, who you are, to thank God for what he's done for you, his grace and mercy, but then to pray that the Lord would enable you that day to do what those verses say. Lord, help me today to present my body to you a living sacrifice to live fully for your glory. Second, God still uses his word as the primary means of sanctification. That hasn't changed. God still uses his word as the primary means of sanctification. A mark of true believers is that they are the ones set apart for the truth of the word. We're therefore to believe it, we're to study it, we're to meditate on it, we're to love it, we're to speak it, we're to think it, and definitely we're to submit to it and obey it. And this is what God uses then to change his people, sanctify them over time. It's the consistent reading and study and preaching of Scripture. I was thinking about that as I studied this week, the power that Scripture has in people's lives and what I've seen in my own life and other people's lives through the years as a pastor. I thought of this illustration. It's not perfect, but it, it, it's, it's kind of illustrated by this. It's what happens when we plant seeds in the ground. They eventually do something. I mean, we don't plant them and then sit there and watch them. You know. No, but eventually they'll sprout due to the nutrients in the soil, the water, and the sunlight, and so forth. We just don't see it immediately. But we expect them to eventually start growing. It's the same way with the words impact in our lives. It's the same way with the words impact in, your, in the way you, you carry on your job at work. It's the same way in the, that the word impacts your marriages, and so on. Not necessarily always an immediate effect. Sometimes it is. But many times it's over time as we faithfully stay under the preaching, the consistent preaching of the word. It has a sanctifying effect on us. And I've seen it over and over, the sanctifying effect on the word of God's people over time. To see the transformation over time. In the way they used to struggle maybe with assurance, but, but over time the preaching of the word has had an effect on them or they understand that better. Struggles in their marriages, whatever. And of course, there's something required of us. We must have an attitude of submission to it. We must come with that attitude. We must seek to apply it. We pray for help in changing in some area. But that's what God uses still today, the word. So, as I said for the first one, Make this personal. How? Just frequently renew your own devotion to the reading and studying of Scripture. We get off track from that. We get lazy in that. We have to 
renew that devotion to the reading and study of Scripture. I mean, we have to recalibrate. Renew your devotion to sitting under faithfully the consistent preaching of Scripture and humbly and prayerfully place yourself under its authority as a daily exercise. And third, finally, God still uses ordinary people in his mission. I said those 11 men weren't that impressive, really, sometimes unimpressive. But God was going to use them. That's still true today. He uses ordinary people in his mission. We studied this recently as well, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Let's be honest. We're not special people. Except in one sense, we are his people. And that is what matters. And each one of us here, as his people, have a role in this mission. We have a role in Christ's saving mission and in his kingdom work. Of course, it happens in various contexts, and I I see that even in our congregation. Some are called to witness to Christ daily in the secular workplace. Some are called to minister to their families in the home. Some are called to serve the Lord all their lives unmarried. Some are called into full-time gospel ministry. Some are called onto the mission field. We've seen all this. And it's the Lord who is behind all that. In fact, it's the Lord who has sovereignly placed you in your context. It's the Lord who sovereignly placed you in your particular family, at your particular workplace, in your particular neighborhood. The people you know, the Lord has sovereignly given you those people to know. And therefore, your holy living, your joy in the Lord, your testimony to the gospel, your prayers are all important in those various contexts. What matters is that we just each obediently embrace our particular calling, just like Jesus did. And again, it's into the world. That's where the mission takes place. We saw that last week. We're not of the world. Therefore, we should not be influenced by it, but we are to live in it, to engage it. And as we do that, we're going to Embrace opposition at times. It's going to come from those in the world. Here's what Spurgeon wrote about that, Charles Spurgeon. Expect to be misunderstood, misrepresented, lied to, ridiculed, and so forth, because so was the Son of God. We are sent into the same world Jesus was sent into, and all that world will treat us in the same manner if we are like him. But yet... That's our mission. God still uses ordinary people in that mission. So like I said for the other two, make this personal. At a minimum, there should be at least some meaningful ways in which every single one of us are seeking to live in the world and interacting with the world as the Lord's witnesses. In fact, we ought to pursue that interaction in as many ways that are wise and careful as possible. But in all our dealings in this world, though we need to be wise about it, 
We should pray this every day. Lord, help me to be bold in this. I need boldness for it. But help me be loving too. Lord, help me find that, that tension there. Help me, help me to know how to balance that regardless of what happens to me. Give me opportunities to interact with worldly people. Give me opportunities that are divine appointments. That's what I like to call them. But Lord, you know me. I need help being bold. And I need help being loving. Ask the Lord to help you with one more thing. To be careful about distractions. Listen, there's so many things that can divert us from our true mission. Not all bad things. Some are. Things that can divert you from the mission. Distractions, whether it be materialism or success or hobbies or politics or entertainment or sports. Some of those things have a place, but here's what I'm saying. Keep them in their proper place, which is this. Subordinate to a life consecrated to Christ and his mission in this world. Let's pray. Father, we need this, this recalibration frequently. So, Lord, I, I thank you for helping us with that today so we can be reminded of what it means to be consecrated unto you and really what sanctification really means to be set apart unto you and to grow in holiness like you. Lord, help us to remember the significant role of the Word in our lives. We confess that we're lazy about it at times and we're neglectful. But it's what you use, and so help us to be committed to it and to love it. And we know it's not just an end unto ourselves, though our holiness is certainly beneficial to us personally. It's for a greater purpose, our mission, the effectiveness of our testimony in this world. And as we seek to live it out, help us to draw encouragement as we think about Christ and all he's done for us and all that he models for us. Father, I pray for anyone here who really can't say they are a follower of Christ. I pray that you would open their hearts to believe that they might understand what it means to be set apart to live for you. In our Savior's name, amen.